expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the life and work of human rights and social activist Lynn Miles, who sadly succumbed to a battle with cancer last week at the age of 72. Miles first came from the U.S. to Taiwan in 1962, where he became involved with the island's emerging movement for democracy. To learn about his work in the movement, I spoke to someone who was actually there, Linda Arago. Now, she's an accomplished activist in her own right, known for her work at the opposition publication Formosa Magazine, and she worked extensively with Lynn Miles. So I asked her what she saw as his biggest contribution to Taiwan. I'd say that, uh, especially in the early period, uh, Lynn's work in uh, exposing human rights abuses in Taiwan had a considerable impact in uh, embarrassing the government and uh, leading to Taiwan's democratization. Uh, And I would say his most important role was uh, from about 1971 to 1979, uh, when it really was dangerous to collect and to transmit human rights material. And at that time, the, uh, the dissidents in Taiwan or whatever movement you might say, or pre-movement, uh, rather was helpless. It was rather it was quite helpless in the face of the governmental repression. Uh, but the government, especially as the U.S. was moving towards relations with relations with China, was quite sensitive to uh, international opinion and international information. So in uh, 1971. Uh, Lin began setting up his network in uh, Osaka, a secret network uh, together with a Japanese woman, uh, Miyake Kyoko, uh, to uh, collect and uh, bring human rights information out of Taiwan. So he was the center uh, of a network of uh, sending people into Taiwan, collecting information, and then sending uh, translating and sending on reports to Amnesty International. Uh, that's what I would, uh, how I would describe his work. And then I became a part of his network in uh, 1977. And uh, Dennis Engbart was also a part of that network, uh, I guess, from the previous year. So it was due to the fact that this network was already pretty well set up and running as of 1975 uh, that when the uh, democratic movement in Taiwan began to go public in 1978, uh, but even before that, in response to the rest of the time, it could uh, be heard. It could be heard, and um, there were protests uh, against arrests in Taiwan uh, quite vocal from, uh, from about 1978 on. And this led to the uh, Kaohsiung incident trial, Uh, the military trial being uh, laid open to international press and then to internal press. And I think it was the uh, opening of that trial, the Kaohsiung incident trial, that was really the watershed in uh, Taiwan's uh, democratization. So it was his role uh, putting together this international network and and using that network to really bring to light, you know, what was going on in Taiwan uh, to the international community. That was really uh, his contribution. 
Right. I think that's, uh, in fact, it's completely correct to say that he was uh, the person responsible for it, uh, for setting it up and making all this information um, available in English because he had to do a huge amount of translation from Japanese and from um, Chinese into English and then also uh, interpret it in the political setting of uh, uh, current development. So it required a very detailed knowledge of the people, of the political situation, of the language. And uh, it was pretty much at the center uh, a one-man operation. Uh, but um, he was also assisted by uh, Miyake and her group of about 30 Japanese uh, and uh, who were collecting information going in and out of Taiwan also. Um, other than that, uh, there were various Christian groups in Japan, such as the Quaker Friends, who would send uh, students to him to act as couriers. Uh, but he was definitely the core of it and the person who kept the continuity and uh, put together the reports. Uh, so as I say, he was um, really quite uh, uh, central, quite central. And uh, to have that one person uh, doing this continually over a decade, I think really made the difference. Could you point to any longer-term impacts uh, that all this work had, you know, extending uh, beyond those early days? Well, uh, we didn't really see too much of an impact within Taiwan until the time when there was the democratic movement arising. But in terms of the uh, individuals who were arrested and often undergoing really horrendous torture, uh, it made a tremendous difference. And one of these is the very famous uh, Xie Tongming, Roger Xie, one of the authors of the uh, uh, Taiwan uh, Declaration of Self-Determination in 1964. And when he was rearrested in 19, let's see, was it late 70 or 71, uh, after he uh, exposed a list of political prisoners, he was uh, rearrested. And he was uh, hung up uh, with his uh, arms crossed behind his back. And uh, for three days, this really leaves uh, you know, permanent damage to the spine and so on. But the tremendous torture he suffered uh, uh, stopped when... Uh, this was exposed, and this was exposed through a very complex <laughs> network of Japanese and uh, American concern, but with Lin as the focal point for translating and explaining and sending all this material on to Amnesty International. So I'm saying for the individuals involved at that time who were suffering, it was a tremendous difference. Um, and then it was, I'd say, really at the time of the Kaohsiung trials, that all of this long-term effort in terms of uh, media and uh, couriers really came together. And I think at that time, the government just didn't know what hit them, uh, how it was as there was such an international response. And uh, as I say, the, the Gaoshu incident trials uh, being made open, uh, at least partially open, and the transcript appearing every day in the local press in Taiwan, incredible under martial law, right? that these dissidents are actually quoted on the front page, uh, full text. And I'd say that this was what uh, really uh, led to a huge change in the Taiwan political mentality and impacted on the democratic movement. And right, so just to extend that a little bit further, 
uh, it seems like, you know, the work that he was doing really did uh, have an impact on that activism, that democratic activism that went on in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, well, I think from the Kaohsiung incident on, uh, if you see Taiwan's society in many, many different, uh, uh, many different realms, uh, cultural, uh, political, social, you'll see this watershed effect at the uh, end of 79 and 1980. So although the authorities really tried to keep everything under wraps, under control, under their thumbs as they had before, from 1979 and 80, that really broke down. And I'd say that this breaking down uh, was, of course, partly due to the United States recognizing the PRC and de-recognizing the ROC. But within that context, the uh, human rights exposés had quite an impact. And, of course, at the time that Lynn was preparing this material for Amnesty, uh, Amnesty, was being, uh, Amnesty International was being recognized uh, internationally with the Nobel Peace Prize and such things. So um, this put really quite a huge pressure on the Taiwan government to at least try to look more liberal than it was. So the long-term effect is, is an accretion. It's hard to look back now to 1980 and say, well, what has changed since then? But there was really a, 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 an accelerated march, let's say an accelerated march uh, towards democratization in that the government just could not uh, put into effect all of its martial law, um, its martial law strictures. It didn't dare to arrest, after 1980, the government did not dare to arrest people and put them on trial for sedition anymore. And that's uh, what made a, a really great difference in the development of the democratic movement. It should be pointed out that, you know, he was kicked out of the country for a time uh, by the Jiang government uh, for his activities. He was blacklisted and he was uh, only allowed to return to Taiwan in 1996. Um, but while he was out, as, as you've described already, he was still very active in what was going on in Taiwan. He was still involved. Uh, and when he did come back... He stayed involved still. I mean, just last year, he was among 119 people that was indicted uh, as part of the Sunflower Movement when they uh, occupied the executive yuan. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that's just a year ago, uh, still kind of bumping heads with the government. So that's a lot of years uh, that we're looking at there. What do you think kept him uh, so engaged in life in Taiwan for so long? Uh, for, for such a long time, right? Um, I think it was uh, probably really the experience from uh, the 1960s. Uh, when he first came to Taiwan in 1962, he came at the invitation of one of his classmates who was a son of one of the security personnel. And it took him about a year here before he began to understand that the silence was um, the silence of repression. And later he did a booklet which was called A Tortured Silence. Uh, but then when he met uh, Liao, uh, the writer Liao, uh, and understood Taiwan's history, uh, I think he was, at a, this young age, an impressionable age, just uh, really drawn in by um, this uh, incredible story of repression and the role of the U.S. in it. So he went to Vietnam. Uh, he signed up to work for a, a helicopter parts company in Vietnam, I think that was 1967-68. And from there, he was able to uh, go from Vietnam to Taiwan 
to Japan regularly and carry information. Uh, and then I think from that, so he was already in a way a human rights courier uh, for like the um, the escape of Pomiming. Uh But I think it was the effect of his people he knew personally uh, being arrested and tortured, uh, you know, especially Xie Ming and uh, Liao and others. I think uh, it was very much the immediacy of knowing them and knowing what was go- what was happening to them probably from that phase that drove him. So if you go online and read about what uh, people have had to say about his passing, I mean, it's been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, I think he's remembered very well by the vast majority of people. Um, but you will find the odd comment uh, from some who... I, this, my sense is that they almost feel like he was meddling in Taiwan affairs, you know, not being born here. Uh, they'll say things like, uh, you know, you were born in America... There's so many things wrong with America. Why are you coming over here uh, and, and working on Taiwan issues? Why didn't, if you wanted uh, to focus on human rights, why didn't you focus on the human rights problems in, in the U.S.? Uh, and so I'm wondering how, if you've ever heard mm-hmm. uh, things along those lines, and, and what your thought is on that? Well, it's a long historical development. So at this point, I would say, yes, somebody who wants to contribute to world peace probably uh, should, uh, could focus a lot on poverty in the U.S., but in this long historical develop- development in the 60s, uh, the U.S. was doing well in the 60s and 70s, but it was definitely uh, the, uh, the guerrilla that was supporting the local guerrillas, uh, very repressive governments all over the world. And you have to see also that it takes a lot of time to learn languages. It takes a long time to be involved in a network. And uh, I'd say that... Um, what Lynn and I did is really, um, uh, you might say, a, a great form of internationalism that was originally promoted by, uh, by Kennedy, you know, by uh, John Kennedy. So I think our mentality very much comes out of the, uh, the uh, Kennedy uh, imperative, you know, Americans go uh, uh, democratize the world. Like the Peace Corps, yeah. Yes, like the Peace Corps, yes, except that we realize the hypocrisy of the U.S., uh, behavior and position, um, and uh, we were, but we were really formed by that period, by that period of uh, objection to the Vietnam War. So we would feel that uh, what was happening in Taiwan was as much a part of America as anything happening in the U.S. itself. Uh, so we 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 would not see this as well. Why are we Americans over here in Taiwan, especially now uh, in this global? Uh, global community, globalization. And, uh, you know, for example, Lin also brought Taiwan indigenous people to participate in the Shoshone anti-nuclear activities, uh, their annual anti-nuclear rally in the Nevada desert. Uh, That was like 1989 and 1990. Uh, So there's there's very much an international dimension that... uh, uh, spreads across all kinds of issues. And uh, in his later years in Taiwan, he was mostly involved with indigenous people and with environmental issues and anti-nuclear uh, uh, movement. 
So when we talk about this history, you know, this history of democratization in Taiwan, uh, I think it's still very difficult to uh, depoliticize that history. I mean, when we when we do talk about this, it's always looked at through the lens of this party or that party, you know, their own personal historical narratives that they're trying to make for themselves. And, you know, that's in large part due to the fact that the parties that were there are still the parties in power. So, you know, they have a, a quite an interest in uh, how this history is presented. Um, do you think that it is possible to look at uh, what yourself and, and Lynn Miles did uh, in, a, in a non-politicized way to see it as something other than that? Well, uh, Lynn, Lynn and I discussed this several times, and uh, we uh, would say quite uh, firmly that our human rights work was never meant to promote Taiwan independence per se, or never meant to specifically promote uh, the Democratic Progressive Party. And the principles of freedom of speech and freedom from uh, political arrest and torture apply across the board. So uh, Lynn, uh, really, the, uh, uh, should be noted that the earliest cases he worked on were cases of people who were pro-PRC who were arrested, uh, such as uh, Tan Yuxi and uh, uh, Liao was one of the, uh, you know, Liao, who's been the presidential candidate, right? Uh, was uh, one of Lynn's first concerns. So uh, we don't feel that this is a partisan issue. Uh, both Lynn and I have felt somewhat pained that uh, many of the Taiwan in- independence advocates would not stand up for the freedom of speech of people who are pro-PRC. Uh, and we feel that the principles of uh, freedom of speech and democracy apply across the board. Well, I do really want to thank you uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. I do know that his passing is still very fresh, um, but it was very important, I thought, to be able to hear this from somebody who was actually there and uh, lived it directly. Before we go, I just uh, wanted to give you a chance and ask, uh, is there anything else uh, about the life of Lynn Miles that uh, you wanted to say? Any, any closing thoughts that you wanted to leave us with? Right. Well, I think uh, I think for Lynn Miles and myself, uh, we have an internationalist view, which means that our basic motivation is concern for human rights throughout the world and wherever American imperialism, in particular, is oppressing people directly or indirectly. We feel we have a right and an imperative to act. But in terms of what people know of us and uh, our place with people we have been with and worked with for a long, long time, I'd say, yes, we belong to Taiwan. And it's right that Lin should die in Taiwan and be buried in Taiwan uh, or his ashes spread in Taiwan. And I think Lin really felt this, at least at the end of his life, that although he had disappointed his family, virtually abandoned his family and his family, uh, wrote him off, his ex-wife wrote him off, that uh, at the end of his life he was recognized and his long-term struggle was validated by the response, a strong response from Taiwan friends and society. One last point, uh, I think that um, Lin's last contribution was to die with good cheer and uh, optimism and uh, verve uh, even to the point that uh, when he realized he had a very short time to live, he said, let's party. <laughs> and so that was the uh, May 30th uh, uh, peace fest out in the hills here in Shiding. And uh, I think this is a very good example who's, uh, of a person 
who faces the end and yet still thinks of how to be together with his friends in a very lively way. And I think this is uh, the best last legacy he can have. And I would say that this ability to uh, face death, I think, was very much honed, very much developed in the human rights work. Uh, that is, by facing difficult questions in life and death situations, or at least knowing about them over a long period of time, you become very tough and also uh, somewhat transcendent. We've been speaking to Linda Arago, and to close out the show today, we're going to hear some of the music featured at the Peace Fest we discussed a moment ago. This is indigenous singer Huda Fu to take us out today. Thanks for listening for ICRT. I'm Keith Manconi. Ya, <laughs> Sika,